listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, it's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed, reproduced or used in any form without permission. For more information or to get in touch, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Motorsport Radio. Hello and welcome to the British GT Fan Show on Motorsport Radio. For all the latest on the 2020 Intelligent Money British GT Championship and more. Coming up on today's show, we've got the very latest GT news. We review the hotly anticipated console release of Assetto Corsa Competizione. And we've an interview with GT3 2C's motorsport driver Angus Fender and our listener Q&A. The British GT Fan Show is hosted by Sarah Smith alongside resident GT geek Nicholas Smith and Andrew Brightman and Gaz Jacobs of the British GT Fans. First of all, in the news for this episode, Motorsport UK have announced that they'll be providing £50,000 of PPE for officials. In April, soon after lockdown was established, Motorsport UK announced a £1 million funding package to help its clubs address the financial consequences of COVID-19. They've now announced a complimentary supply of personal protective equipment to the value of £50,000 to be provided to support events as motorsports begin to restart from the 4th of July, in conjunction with the guidance received from the experts. The equipment will be distributed to all Motorsport UK licensed rescue and recovery units and registered clubs with an event permit during July and August. They've said this is there to help clubs and licensed rescue recovery operators who may be experiencing supply chain issues due to current market demand. Motorsport UK have also confirmed that they will be providing individual pocket hand sanitizers to all officials working at its events and beyond the initial supply will be organising a central procurement contract for any additional supplies required. We've also seen that Andy Prio, MBE, has announced by press release that he's retiring from touring car racing. Prio was driving for Lincoln Co. Cyan Racing in the FIA World Touring Car Cup, but cites coronavirus restrictions and a desire to support his son Seb Prio's racing career as reasons for the decision to hang up his touring car gloves. Andy Prio, of course, raced at Spa in the number 19 Multimatic Motorsports Ford Mustang in the 2019 British GT Championship, will now be working as a development driver for Multimatic, along with ambassadorial duties and occasional competitive outings. Nick, do you have any thoughts on this you'd like to share? Just that it's nice for for Andy. The the man, he, he's, he started off in British motorsport and he climbed Olympus in becoming world champion multiple times. He's had a good run in the touring cars, but he's always kept his, his hand in with GTs and etc. Um, he's also gone from being a racing son to a racing father to being the professional Prio. And now he's he's in the role of racing dad. And obviously he's he's putting his family first. And he, he did say that there's uh that he's relocating basically lock, stock and, and barrel the entire family to the States for, for a period of time to support Seb's racing career. Um, now, as drivers get to the point where they are looking at other things from life, it's nice to see that an organisation like Multimatic are supporting a driver that's bought them success and finding him a role which isn't after racing because he'll still be racing. 
but enables him to transition from full-time professional racing driver to something more conducive to a family life. We, of course, wish him all the best with that. We do. Hi, I'm Michael O'Brien, professional racing driver for McLaren, and I'm delighted to be joining the guys on the British GT Fan Show. Go and check them out, and uh, yeah, you won't be disappointed. And be sure to check out British GT Fans on Facebook and Fans of British GT on Instagram and Twitter. anticipated official GT World Challenge video game Assetto Corsa Competizione released on console this week and Nick and Gaz both had it so we thought we'd have a chat about it and give a bit of a review. So first off how excited were you to receive your delivery? What console and gear are you using and how long have you had to play it so far this week? My internet broke on Saturday so I had to wait until Wednesday morning to try and download it. Didn't manage to get anything done until Thursday afternoon and then I've done a bit on it today. Yeah, just coming through the PS4 with a T150 Thrustbuster wheel. I did pre-order as soon as I found out they were doing the free Intercontinental DLC pack with it. So that is the Intercontinental Endurance Challenge, uh, which in 2019, which the game is based off of, was Bathurst 12 hours, Kailami 9 hours, Suzuka eight hours, if I recall, and there is another one, and I cannot remember for the life of me what it is. Um, but you get the maps, for the, the the tracks for that as a free download, and you also get some additional liveries for the cars um, in obviously Intercontinental GT Challenge specification. Um, I'm playing it on an Xbox One S, and whilst I have a Thrustmaster TMX steering wheel. Unfortunately, the game doesn't support it, so that's sat in the corner, and I'm having to learn how to drive on a control pad again. And how long have you been playing this week so far? Well, unfortunately, it turned up on Tuesday, um, and in terms of um, how excited was I when I got it, I tracked the Amazon van from the other side of the city, and I was waiting at the front door when he arrived. (laughs) Um, So I was looking forward to it slightly, Um, but... I give it about six hours on Tuesday, uh, played a bit on on Wednesday, uh, and then it's been a couple of hours when I've got home from work each night since. Mm-hmm. What expectations of the game did you have prior to receiving it? I was expecting, you know, as, as I think we found detailed tracks, solid gameplay, you know, and, 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 and realistic. Uh, drivability of the cars, as I'm filing out to my absolute detriment of <laughs> just managing to spin out on every single corner on the first uh, training session. I was, I was hoping for a little bit more of a an easy way of setting everything up. What were you expecting of the game, Nick? Basically, as as with Gaz, I, I was expecting it to be difficult to to get configured. Um, as with, I mean, I have on my shelf next to my desk, both Project Cars, uh, Project Cars 1 and Project Cars 2. And they are the same as Assetto Corsa and Assetto Corsa Competizione uh, in that they are ported PC simulators converted to console. And as a result, the setup of them is hideously complex because they've 
they basically they've dumbed down a bit software that's supposed to be completely configurable to people that are running rat, wraparound screens, people that are running three screens, people that have got the latest Fanatex doing will, and people that are doing the um, people that are doing the older uh, Gilles Villeneuve. Uh, just a laptop and an Xbox controller. Um, so I expected it to be fairly difficult to set up. What I also expected was that the graphics were going to be very simulator. And I've been pleasantly surprised there. So the trailers certainly look magnificent from everything that we've seen. Um, and you touched on your first impressions of the graphics. Uh, is that carried through into the actual gameplay as trailers do tend to kind of show the best of a game um and in terms of sound what are your thoughts on that can you tell the different engines by sound alone i've actually been really impressed with um the the level of the graphics i suppose uh especially when racing in the dark um you know i, th- I thought i found, i thought that was really well done um in terms of sound yeah there are there's a, there's a lot more noises than i've i've experienced on my lim- must, I'll admit, a limited amount of uh, experience with these uh, simulation games. You, you get if you just run through a gravel trap, you'll have for the next couple of minutes the sound of gravel rattling around in your car and being loosed onto the track. So yeah, that's that was a uh, that's, that's actually quite surprising for me. I say graphically, it's it's a lot better than I expected on a scale of Forza to R Factor. It's it's up towards the Forza end, uh, by which I mean R Factor is a dedicated simulator, so they haven't really worried about graphics, they've worried about the physics and the tyre performance and this, that and the other. Forza is a game, it's supposed to look beautiful and it does, but what it trades off for that is that in terms of the actual physics, it's not as as close to real life as it should be. Assetto Corsa Competizione struck the balance pretty well in my opinion. As for the sounds, I have spent some time and I've gone and driven every car but the Huracan Evo and the Gallardo in practice mode. And you can hear the sound difference. The sounds are, they're pretty much spot on. Um, You've got squeaking from the brakes when you're applying the brakes, when you're running over the marbles on the track. And there are marbles and the tyre marbles build up on the circuit. You can hear the marbles hitting the underside of the car. As Gaz said, when you run through the gravel, which when you first get the game, you'll be doing quite a bit, um, you then hear the gravel falling out of the car afterwards for for quite a bit on the way down the track. The one thing I will say is that gravel then isn't there to screw you up next time you come round. So it hasn't, hasn't quite got that just right. But in terms of its sound and the different engine notes. One thing that very, very much surprised me is you've got a distinct, distinct engine note differences depending on which view you use. So if you're in cockpit mode, it sounds like you're inside the real car. If you're in the, the, the view that just shows you the bonnet, which is what I'm having to race in at the moment because using a control pad, the steering wheel's not looking like the inputs that I'm putting in, and it's throwing me off. Obviously, with a Lamborghini, you hear slightly less of the engine because the engine's further behind you. And if you're in the view that's behind the car, you hear a completely different engine sound again because you're behind the car. So they thought about that as well. Cool. 
So moving on to gameplay a little bit, we've touched on the difficulties around configuration. Uh, but first of all, do you reckon you need a wheel and pedals to play or is it something that the more casual racing gamer will still be able to kind of access and, and enjoy? The more casual racing gamer will be able to access and enjoy Assetto Corsa Competizione, providing they use Google. Because I spent, on Wednesday, I thought, look, this is getting stupid. Every time I go near a corner, I end up looking at where I've been. Um, so I st started, I picked the hardest car to handle, which in my opinion was the Porsche. And I went to one of the stoppiest, startiest, most difficult to to get sort of figure out circuits, which is Monza. You've got a fast straights, slow corners, flowing corners. It's it's a good mix. It's why a lot of championships test there. Um, and I just pounded round and tweaked controller settings until I managed to get in three consecutive clean laps, at which point I said, right, that'll do. Um, now, what I can do is I can stick up on our website or in our social media my controller settings for Xbox, and anybody that wants to try them can feel free. But you, you've got to tweak it. You, you've got to tweak those settings to get it where you need it to be. Once you've done that, it's actually it's a challenging game, and because it isn't a game, it's a simulator. Um, but it is challenging. You've got to take into account things like tyre wear and bringing your tyres in and fuel load and this, that and the other. There's several settings that you, you can change from in the cockpit, um, which you need to tweak throughout a race um, to, to get best performance out of the car. So it might be a bit much for the casual gamer, the sort of people that, that only really want to play Forza Horizon or GT Sport, uh, depending on your preference of console. But if you like Forza, but it's not quite real enough, then this is the game for you. So I'm I'm having enough difficulties with the wheel, so I couldn't imagine ever trying to trying to play with a with a uh, controller. Um the one thing I will say is if you have got a wheel you, you, and you want all the settings to hand, you best have a quite a detailed wheel. Um, you know the the amount of um, options you can put you can assign to the buttons on your wheel is is quite extensive, more than what I've seen in in, in anything else. Again, my my experience is quite limited, but oh yeah, and one one well, one thing I found they they were they weren't they weren't trying to get you to use the paddles behind the wheel with mine. They were trying to get you to use one of the button two of the buttons for the gear changes, which is really strange. I don't I don't know why it automatically mapped to that. I don't know if that's down to um, other profiles from other wheels. So my paddles will be assigned to R1, R2. Yeah. Where we're, Again. We're, oh, sorry, even R1 or, yeah, R1 or, or L2, sorry. Yeah, whereas... Again, with that, Gaz, it's a ported PC simulator. I understand that. PC, PCs don't have controllers, so they don't have an R1 and a L1 I button. I, I absolutely understand that. But mm. the... I believe the Thrustmaster one can actually be used on PC anyway. Yeah, and then you map the controls to your peripheral. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll go with that one, so, yeah. No, no, that's fair enough. It's, it's your opinion, and yeah. it, it's a valid one, unless you're, was, unless you're used to playing ported simulators, it's not something you think of. Yeah. 
So as we've already kind of mentioned, there are a lot of different assists and monitors available, such as your tyre pressure, your tyre wear, your brake management, as well as real life rule sets to adhere to, such as pit lane guidelines. Does this give the game a sense of realism and how have you managed so far with these, Nick? For the first 12 hours, the game was, forgive my language, kicking my ass until I got the controller sorted out and I started figuring out how the game wants you to interact with it. I've started to get better. What I will say, and he's not here to defend himself, is that Andrew Brightman has been the model for the driving standards observers on Marshall's posts <laughs> around the virtual circuit. Because anytime you go anywhere near a curb, you get a pit, you get a track limits infringement. <laughs> um, the, the pit lane speed limiter was, was problematical at first until I found the right setting to turn on and turn off and, and, and this, that and the other. But again, once you've got used to it and how it wants you to interact, it's, it's, it's fairly good. Yeah, I think that's what my, I think that's where my issues stem from. I haven't yet been able to devote the amount of time needed to get used to all these things. I mean, the pit lane limiter, I'll stick it to automatic. Because, um, you know, I was, when I was going through the button assignments, going back to that again, I couldn't find a button which I wanted to assign to the pit lane limiter. You know, so I'd have to... So I had to set it to automatic. But it's those kind of things which... to That would kind of take me out of my... The enjoyment that I want to get out of this. Yeah, so if I came into the pits in a bit of a hurry and I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't select the pit lane limiter. I didn't really, I didn't, I don't really want to get pinged for a pit lane speed infringement and stuff like that. So oh, if, if you get pinged for a pit lane speed infringement, again, Andrew monitors that because you don't get a drive through, you get disqualified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, so going, going, going for that, actually, they, on my, so I went straight in for the championship mode. I didn't even bother going for the career mode or anything like that. I thought, yeah, I was going to go straight into the championship thing, right? So it took me straight into the Zolder meeting and did all the practicing, qualifying, you know, barely made a decent lap out of any either of those two sessions. And then I did the race. And of course, I finished in first position because I didn't do the mandatory pit stop because nothing was on screen to tell me I had to do a mandatory pit stop. I was like, where the hell's all these other cars gone? Yeah. So again, it's something that I'm just not used to. Yeah. So when I'm playing, Project cars, you'll have something come through on the um, the speaker on the, on the controller saying you need to make a pit stop. Come on, come on, it, come on in now. Yeah, it did tell me that the pit window had opened and the pit window had closed. Yeah, on the first lap, <laughs> it told me the pit, the pit window was open on the first lap, and I was like, "Okay, are you doing endurance or are you doing sprint?" I think I was doing a sprint season. So oh. yeah, so. because it's it's the same rule set as British GT. Yeah. In terms of the one-hour races or the sprint races, mandatory pit stop, 10 minutes across the half-hour mark. Yeah. Uh, endurance, it opens after the first lap and closes on the final lap. And, yeah, and I, I was, I was doing this there. on like a 20-minute race or something. I, mm. so I just jumped straight in. And I, just wanted to, I just wanted to see how it played, you know, and all this kind of stuff, right? So... Yeah, and I, and I just got an instant disqualification at the end of the race. By the way, you did do your manager pit stuff. I was like, oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> well, at least I'll know from now. At least I'll know from now. You, you can adjust realism settings as well if you don't want the real uh, SRO experience. Then you can turn off a lot of these things, um, but you you then you get penalised for that in terms of your your driver grading. The game emphasizes driving standards 
Um, oh yeah, it does. Uh, to, to the point where it won't let you go into competitive play until you've reached the required minimum standard. So you're not pissing off everybody else in the lobby. Basically, you can do multiplayer with your friends and what on whatnot, but you can't actually go into the ranked lobbies until you've reached the standard required to get into the ranked lobbies, uh, which I haven't yet. So I've not I've, I've not looked at multiplayer at all. So, Gaz, you jumped straight into championship mode, as you said, because um, you wanted to just basically get stuck in. Nick, um, I understand that you went a slightly different route and looked a little bit more at the career mode. So talk me through your experience so far on that front. Well, the career mode... Um, the career mode starts you off and you join the Lamborghini Youngster program, which is their idea of a tutorial. And they give you three 15-minute practice sessions, one in the dry at Monza, one in the wet at Monza, and one in the dark at Monza. And you're playing against other Lamborghini Youngsters. Now, I'm just going to take it off pause and read off the names of some of these youngsters. Uh, Frank Pereira, Phil Keane, Rick Breukers, Rolf Eichen, and Ezekiel Perry Compank are the guys that you're up against or virtual versions of. I wouldn't classify Phil Keane as a young driver and I wouldn't classify Frank Pereira as one either. <laughs> I, w- I, w- I was actually very surprised to see that as well when I tried it on career mode. Um, yeah. Um, and you've got to, basically to pass each test, you've got to put in two clean laps and then build up your pace. And it grades you at the end. And the way that it grades you is by which teams it then says that want to run your your campaign in the sprint championship. Um, so first time I went through it, I got offered a number of cars, uh, including the Gen 2 Bentley. So I jumped in that and went off to Zolder. And then I fixed the controller problems and thought I'll go through it again. And since then, it's only been offering me the ML3 Jaguar and a Porsche. So I'm currently going through the um, the tutorial again to try and unlock a different car because whilst I like the ML3 Jaguar and the Porsche is a perfectly capable car, I want to drive something British. Aston Martin, Bentley, McLaren, give me one of them. So that leads me nicely into the next question of what's been your favourite car to drive so far? So I've jumped straight in on... The Merc AM, the, the, I think the 2015 version of the Merc, um, Merc AMG, that has been the most enjoyable one so far. As I said, uh, going into career mode, you, you get dumped in on this Lamborghini Youngster program and you drive a Lamborghini Super Trofeo around Monza for a few times. And that is the most twitchy, horrible thing I've ever, think, uh, thing I've ever experienced. But that could be down to settings again. But yeah, so far the the best one. Cause I think I've dro- I think I drove a Bentley first time, and that wasn't too bad. But I think the Merc so far is my is my personal favourite. Even though it keeps on spinning me out every single corner I try and get around. For me, I've I say I've driven them all, um, and there's a few there that I can't quite get my head around. Unfortunately, one of them is a V12 Vantage because I want that noise, but I do not want that understeer. The Gen 2 Bentley is pretty darn good. Um, but the one that's from my playing around in single-player mode to sort of have a go at all the cars, 
the one that jumped out at me as right this has just clicked and this car is it's almost effortless is the 720s and the 650 isn't too bad either so i'm hoping to go down the mclaren route so the base game focuses exclusively on the european gt world challenge with 11 tracks featured now in addition to the launch day dlc intercontinental gt pack Assetto Corsa Competizioni have also announced that they're releasing a GT4 DLC pack due in autumn, which will add at least another 10 cars, and that'll arrive ahead of the British GT pack due out later in the same year. How do you think this will improve the game, and will you be meeting them with the same anticipation as the base game now that you've had a chance to give it a go? I I can't wait to get my hands on some of these uh, GT4 cars, even though, even though I haven't been through the GT3s yet. I think I think there's pl- I think there's plenty of fun that could be handed in a GT4 as well, um, and you know they look quite. I think they've been leasing um, little snippets and trailers for each car uh, over the last few days, and some of them look very impressive so far. Right, I'm sat here now looking at the car list for the GT4 pack, and Aston Martin V8 Vantage GT4. Audi R8 LMS GT4, uh, Porsche 718 Cayman GT4 Club Sport, uh, Camaro, Ginetta G55, KTM Crossbow Expo, however you pronounce it, uh, Maserati Gran Turismo MC GT4, that one's going to get driven straight away, uh, McLaren 570, Mercedes AMG, and the M4 are the ones that we've all seen before. The one that I haven't seen before, and I'm guessing Gaz probably hasn't either, is the Alpine A110 GT4. I didn't realise they built one of them. Oh, yeah, that's been racing around in France for the last couple of years, at least. Ah, Can we get one of them in British GT, please? Because that car is beautiful. There was a rumour that someone would bought one. I don't know who, but there was a rumour that um, someone had bought one and was going to be entering it, but it didn't really materialise. Well, I had the season pack, the season pass, which is... You, buy, you, you commit to both DLC packs and you get a little bit off them. And I bought that before the game even turned up. So I'm having both because uh, the other DLC pack that's coming is the British pack, which puts in the circuits that are missing from the British GT calendar. Um, so really working on this podcast, you've kind of got to have that, haven't you? So, yes, pretty excited about it. I will be playing with the GT4 cars. Uh, To be honest, I prefer, from other games, I prefer GT4 to GT3 uh, for the same reason that in in my road cars, I've always driven underpowered cars. Even the the one big car I've had was a Citroen C5, and that was a 1.6 diesel. And the reason for that is it's a different way of driving. It's about maintaining momentum rather than using power. And it's going to be the same with the GT4 cars. And that, 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 that sits more with the way that I like to drive is, is, is carrying the speed rather than using the power. Yeah, I'll be just like you, Nick. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be getting both DL, DLC packs and, you know, I'll be messing around with the GT4s as well. Um, yeah, I imagine the, the, the driving style is going to be a hell, a hell of a lot different compared to what I've seen on, on, on previous um, simulations that I've done. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. What I will say is if you are racing multi-class, like British GT, and the AI that's running the GT3 cars is as it is in the in the sprint championship, in the in the career mode, 
it's going to be scary driving a GT4 car when the GT3 cars come through. <laughs> I imagine it's quite oh. scary driving one those little one that, one of those things compared to compared to the GT3s anyway. So especially around some mm. of our circuits. Yeah, not looking not looking forward to coming across GT3 traffic in a GT4 car at Nickerbrook. No, that would be nasty, and especially around by um, going up over the over the water to, over by the water tower towards Druids as well. I can get quite sketchy at times. Okay, so finally, quick fire. I want your rundown. I'm going to give you each ninety seconds, and I have got a timer. I want you standout features so far. What your biggest niggle is. What one thing you'd really like to be fixed or improved, and your marks out of ten. So we'll start with Nick. I've got the timer, and the timer's going to start in three, two, one, go. Standout feature for me, I'm torn between the way the cars have been reproduced and the weather. Now, I've driven a lot of games that have dynamic weather. I've got all the Forzas. I've got um, both the P cars. I've got the the F1 games and uh, Grid as well. This does it better than any of the others, in my opinion. It's done very, very well. The niggle that I'd want to see fixed um, would be the the online player issues that they're having at the moment. It is launch week, so things aren't going to be perfect. But if you're selling a game, you should get it as close to right as possible. The absolute fix it now, or I'm going to stamp my feet and scream and scream and scream until I'm swick, is the fact that my reel doesn't work. I'm not going to go out and spend 200 quid on a new wheel to play a £35 game. You should be supporting all the peripherals that are available for the console. Marks out of 10, I'm going to give it 7.5 at the moment. When they fix the gropes that I've got, that'll probably go up to a solid 9. The other thing that I will say is that it's, I say, a very beautiful game. The sound is fantastic. And doing the tie-in with SRO for GT World Challenge means that as a motorsport fan... I'm seeing people that I see on the racetrack. I'm I'm racing against virtual copies of my heroes. And it brings more engagement to the game. Um I've been I've been fighting with Ezekiel Berry Compank. And uh, stop. Oh. <laughs> Would you like to finish your point, Nick? Yes, please. I say I've been fighting with Ezekiel Perry Compank, his 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 virtual double at Zolder. And I've been fighting with some of the other players at Zolder as well, and on some of the other AIs. And I'm not saying come back here, you little bugger. I'm saying, Oi, Ezekiel, get back here. I'm I'm engaging with the virtual doppelgangers of the people that I see racing. And it, it just adds more enjoyment for me. Okay. Gaz, you ready? Yep. Cool. Same rules apply, same list. In three, two, one, go. Uh, my standout features, my standout feature is, is the night racing effects. That looks absolutely stunning. I, I would actually believe that I was actually at that circuit during the night. Um, shout outs must go to the sound effects going down the pit lane exit at Zolder stamp your foot on the accelerator and it's, it reverberates around the the arco on either side and as soon as you go onto the track the, the sound dissipates um, weather effects are outstanding and you know just the general car dynamics it's so 
you know, just put your, put your foot down at the wrong point and you, and you will go around and you will go around multiple times. My niggle is, you know, the, just the finicky settings. You know what I mean? Give us a little bit more of a clue about what each of them do rather than just a brief description on the side. Especially for people like myself, I'm not, you know, I'm not a diehard down the line sim racer. I'm, I want to play to enjoy. So to, you know, give me some enjoyment out, out of, you know, setting my car up. Feedback settings must be my fix. Um, I've had to really play around with the settings on my T150. I think, they, I think the game puts you at 50% feedback at, at the start. I'm, I'm up to 80% just to try and get some feeling out of it. At the moment, I will give the game a 7 out of 10. I will, I, I, I will go, I will go. If the, once the game improves, once the updates come out, the score will go up, I feel sure. And as I get used to the, as I get, as I get used to the game a little bit more, the score will go up. Motorsport Radio. So we're really pleased to have on the show uh, for this episode, Angus Fender, GT3 driver for 2Cs Motorsport. Welcome to the show, Angus. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Looking forward to uh, hearing what uh, questions you guys have sent in. I'm, I'm expecting only the best. <laughs> so how are you doing, first of all? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, um, it's it's kind of been a nice therapy session being through lockdown and being able to just go back to basics, but it's been dragging on for a bit now, so I'm definitely looking forward to the start of the racing season. So we'll jump straight into the questions then. Uh, you started your racing career after a corporate karting event in 2009 and spent seven years racing in various karting championships, claiming five titles in that time. Was there a particular reason you chose to stay in karting rather than move into, say, Janetta Juniors or Sax Max and start your career in cars sooner than that? To be honest with you, moving into cars was never really on my cards, so to speak, until I joined what's called like, the MSA Ace Academy thing. And basically that, that freed up so much more time for me to go and do the testing that's obviously required to move into cars. Uh, and that was mid-2016 that happened. So from then, I was able to kind of change my stance on what I wanted to achieve. Um, obviously, we didn't... Well, my family haven't come from a background of wealth, so we couldn't really afford to jump straight into cars as soon as we could. We stayed in carts for as long as we could, did some, uh, did some pretty good things along the way, I'd like to think, and then moved into carts, and it was about time to do that. And the rest, mm. they say, is history. Yeah, so what was the plan prior to that, then? The plan was really just to go and enjoy it. I mean, I started in 2009 in Easy Kart UK Cadet Series. It's now, I think, the Daniel Ricciardo Karting Championship. So, and that was absolutely ages ago. There were so many people now. I think Ross Gunn did that. The mm. first race I did, Ross Gunn did, and I, I rolled it and he won. So, um, that's always my claim to fame if things don't turn out the way I want to. But just kind of, just by enjoying it over a few years, just kind of progressed up the ranks. And come 2013, I was a front runner in cadets, managed to win three regional championships that year. And then 2014, moved up to juniors for the next three years. And then once I was done with that as well, having come second in Britain in the British championships, I thought it's time to go and do a new adventure. Mm. So obviously with the opportunities that opened up, you then moved across to racing cars in 2017, um, starting out with a full season in the Ginetta GT5 Challenge. Since then, you've been on British GT packages every year. What is it about British GT weekends that keeps you coming back? Well, um, well, the British GT paddock itself is one I really enjoy. It's not... I much enjoy the kind of endurance style of racing. So British GT, even if I'm not racing in the series itself, is something I always really enjoy to be around and watch. 
and you have a lot of major manufacturers and teams that will be going around Europe, maybe even the world, for example, and it's just good if you can perform well in front of them, then you put yourself in really good stead for a good drive in the future. But uh, I actually did Genetta Super Cup in 2018, and that was on the Toka package. Yep. Um, and even though even though that series was great, I didn't enjoy the circuit atmosphere as much. So I, I've always been a fan of the British GT paddock. Mm. So talking about the Genetta GT4 Super Cup, what did that kind of teach you that you could carry forward into the British GT and GT4 in 2019? Yeah, well... Start 2017 was a really, really tough year. We didn't do enough testing and I didn't give myself enough time to adapt to how big a difference it was coming out of karting into cars. Mm. So 2017 was a real baptism of fire and 2018 was really important to kind of recapture that confidence and relight that fire that I came out of karting with. Um, I preferred the GT4 car much more over the GT5 and I think the kind of proofs there straight away where first time in the car I put on the front row of brands. But um, that series kind of gave me the confidence to actually go wheel-to-wheel with other competitors, more experienced competitors as well, say, actually, no, I'm, I'm going to fight for this position, and if you want this podium, you're going to have to take it from me. And just trying to carry that mentality forward has kind of really helped me through the last year. So um, those kind of building blocks of base confidence you need came from there. Mm. And your British GT career so far is very impressive, I have to say. Um, you did seven rounds in the BMW M4 GT4 before being promoted to GT3 with Century Motorsport. How daunting was it to be put in top class in your first year of multi-class racing? Uh, <laughs> short answer to your question is um, very, really. Uh, before Brands Race, I think we qualified P5 overall, and I was half a tenth off a of pole in my session for qualifying. And I was so close to tears for, for the start of that race because I was obviously starting the car. And I think it was the second race I'd actually started that year. The, fir- the first one being the second race at Alton Park first round. So it had been ages since I started a race. And I was new to the car. Everything was new. The car was so much quicker. But again, the, the quicker the class has got, I seem to be able to get up to speed more quickly. I think my driving style suits it more. So as soon as you get in the car and start that engine, and of course the M6 has a very beastly engine, you kind of forget all your nerves and you just get on with the job at hand, really. Mm. so moving across to mclaren new team big challenge what appeals to you about the mclaren 720s and also what is it that brought you to two c's motorsport and what appeals to you there well i've driven the mclaren now i'm lucky enough to have done a test before the whole covid thing kicked off and as soon as i left the pits i thought i can really push this car immediately the m6 wasn't a car that i felt massively comfortable with even if it was better than the m4 or the gt5 or the super cup car it wasn't a car that i enjoyed pushing it was quite Mm. nervous through slow speed stuff so you couldn't really shoot the car into slow corners and expect to come out the other side whereas the mclaren i left the pits in that and it just felt like a completely different machine of course it's the first mid-engined car i'd ever driven um and straight out of the box it felt so planted and so confident uh, inspiring really but um mm. the new team change yeah two c's came to me late in 2019 with a contract offer to race the mclaren gt3 and obviously you don't get these things every day so um to have the prospect of this kind of drive in a series such as this in a car that will not only go sound and look as well as this but also being so close to mclaren it was a really 
really important opportunity to take. So from that point, my goal was solely set on McLaren. Hmm. So is there anything that you think um, skills-wise that you learned from being in the BMW that you can transfer across to the McLaren? Yeah, I think the... The ability to know the tyre life, I think, is a really important one. Obviously, the silver cars are carrying more weight. You're always going to be harder on your tyres than your brakes as well. And uh, the M6 was quite hard on its front tyres. I remember I remember that quite well, actually. But, um, yeah, learning how to conserve and manage the tyre grip that's available throughout the stint was a skill that was really important. And at Brands Hatch, I didn't do the best job of that. But at Donington, I'd learnt from the previous round. I was able to utilise it better. So that's definitely one thing that I've learned from that and I'm looking forward to putting it in use really. Mm. And I know you said that cars was never really on the radar to start with. Um, obviously you're there, you're trouncing it right now. So what's next and where do you see Angus Fender racing in 2025? I think the goal's got to be a factory drive, hasn't it really? I think everyone doing this series wants something like this to be at Le Mans, to be in the World Endurance Championship for a really top manufacturer and to try and make a living out of this sport is hard enough. So mm. you've got to set your targets high and just push as hard as you can to get it. So that's, that's my aim really. And I'm fairly sure that's a common commodity for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think it's clear that you've got quite a good relationship with your sponsors. I know you'd said that, you know, you haven't come from kind of a background of wealth. Um, so that's something that's obviously potentially been a barrier for you and one of the questions that we've got for you in our submitted questions is actually from one of your sponsors oh brilliant <laughs> um so how important has the sponsorship process been for you in developing your career in short sponsorship is absolutely everything and i couldn't have moved to cars without them in the first place um obviously my main sponsors cambridge county's bank have been just crazily important i can't really stress it enough how it's opened all these doors for me that I never thought would be possible. So I can't really put into words how important having a good relationship with sponsors and having the kind of trust to say, I, I really appreciate your help and I'm going to do the best that I can for you, for the both mm -hmm. of us. So it, it means a huge amount and to have their trust um, really helps my confidence as well and just uh, enjoy what I do. Yeah. And in terms of the process, was it, something that you went out to kind of actively advocate for or had you been fortunate enough to kind of have people come to you and say hey we really like what you're doing uh, we want to be in on it and how would you advise someone who is wanting to potentially start racing in terms of approaching sponsorship i'd i'd love it if sponsorship was as easy as the last one you just said it, it, it's very <laughs> it's amazing, very rare that sponsors come to you and if, if 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 life was that easy then i'd be in a very different place right now but no, all the sponsors I have, we've all approached and it's been through contacts we've had or links we've known, people we've known inside corporations. Mm. Um, I think a very important quote through motorsport is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I think that quote's especially relevant when it comes to sponsorship. For people looking to kind of follow what us GT drivers do and acquire sponsorship, I think it's important to not be a punter who will just say, hi, my name's Angus, or hi, my name's X, can you sponsor me? It's important to set out a business plan and really put your thoughts of what you can do into paper or a PowerPoint or something that's impressive that you can show. Uh, I think one of the most important things I did was go to a show called Race Retro that I know is held up uh, every year in February. And I went there uh, a couple of times with 
my cart off the 2016, or I think it was 2016 early, actually, I took my cart. In 2017, I took my GT5 car with an absolute ton of flyers and brochures. And you're never going to get through them all. No one's going to be absolutely swarming around a driver who they don't know. But there will be someone there who will pick up something that you give out and say, yeah, this guy's appeared well to me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some trust in this guy and I'm going to help him out. And then it's, it's a bit like a snowball once you've acquired the first one. It just keeps on uh, making it easier to go out and find more. Oh, so I think we'll move on to some of the questions that we've had submitted. So first up, just to kick things off, Uberlord Metagross on Reddit. <laughs> That's the name. It is. Um, has asked, how do you prepare for a race mentally and physically? Uh, firstly, very good question. I, I approve of that a lot. Mentally, it's a case of trying to declutter your life as much as you can, obviously. In Britain especially, life tends to be quite chaotic and rushed around, so taking time for yourself on the build-up to race weekend is really important. Um, obviously, I'm now at university, so I have a little bit of free time, not a huge amount, but the free time I do have around a race weekend is really important to use that to focus on yourself and find your find your kind of zen mode. And I know it's a bit cliche, but it does help going to race weekend. Physically, obviously, you'd expect drivers to be training all the time, and that is kind of the case, but before a race weekend, it's important to take some time to let yourself be fully recovered and strong enough going into race weekend. You don't want to run yourself into the ground just before you have to go and do, say, a two-hour stint at Silverstone because you just won't have the physical strength to deal with that if you're still recovering. Mm. It's important to give yourself some time off as well as all the hard work you put in. Uh, so Cody S1998, also on Reddit, uh, kind of related to that, I was asked, what, if anything, do you eat or drink the day before or of the race? Day before, you tend to just kind of keep on low carbs, quite high protein diet. It's not as it's not as strict as you'd say for F1 where they have their own nutritionist for me. I do all my cooking for myself. My mum helps sometimes, but obviously being at uni, I have to prepare all my food for myself. Um, on a race day, it's an entirely different story, really, because your nerves get to you. And often on race days, I found it really hard to have an appetite to eat anything. Mm. And I know a lot of drivers are similar to me in this regard, you need to eat something before a race. I can't stress that enough, but you don't really want to. So you have to have something that's small and quite, quite energy full, actually, just to give you that kind of kick you need to wake yourself up. And then really yeah. you should be good for the race. Uh, so I'm going to throw in one here because you kind of spoke about the need to kind of also decompress after a race, which when you've been doing anything that's kind of that high stress is really important. So how do you decompress? What do you do? Uh, I usually just go and I have a day to myself and I hang around with my dog, who I love very much, spend a lot of time with. All my family, my sister's here quite a bit now. So just spend time with the ones that I'm really close with. Obviously, I can't do that at uni, but if I'm not at university, I definitely do that. Or at mm -hmm. university, I just go and spend a day with mates, that kind of thing, if I can. Yeah. It's important to give yourself some free time as well. You can't dedicate every minute of every second of every day towards something you need to give yourself time to rest so what is it you're studying at uni i'm doing motorsport technology at oxford brooks so those who are into motorsport engineering will already know the oxford brooks name uh, i've had a really interesting first year uh, learned a huge amount and i'm just waiting on my exam results at the moment so slightly stressed about that but they went pretty well so i'm also uh, quite confident that everything will be fine with that 
Cool. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed as well. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure you've done great. Over to Gaz now for a couple of questions. Next. Hello, Angus. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you, Gaz. Okay, so my first question comes from, also comes from Reddit and was asked by AstroCat9. What are the scariest conditions you've drove in? Right, well, I'm going to have to throw it outside of British Tea for this one. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it would have to be the Dubai 24 hours this year when quite a lot of you will know that it got rained off. And um, I was either fortunate or very unfortunate to be out on track at the time it started raining. And um, it was dark at the time, so dark, dark and rainy on a track that's notoriously sandy was quite scary, especially when... I was the only one in my class to make the call to stay out on slicks for half an hour whilst it was raining. That was, um, it was fun in a very not fun kind of way. So you're just kind of sliding around everywhere in the driver assists all around the place. And you're trying so hard to keep it on track. But um, it's also quite enjoyable being able to play around with that car. But it turned out, actually, that was the right, the, um, that was the right strategy call. I took my car from a lap down to leading class. So scary as it was, it was the right call. Was that your call or was it the team's call, that one? Yeah, that was my call. My teammate boxed for wets and lost a lap out of it, so... That's very fair, kind of glad I made that call to be the only one left. The only one in class not to do that, so... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give myself a little bit of credit for that. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't watching the race at that time, but then I went back and caught up on it, and... Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to be out there at that time, so... I saw some pictures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was one of the first things that I'd kind of seen coming back to into GT racing and, and stuff. And it was like, that's a lot of rain. <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. I've never seen rain like that, especially in a place like Dubai. You don't expect it to rain there, but you know that when it does, it's going to completely tip down. The Sentry's one of the ones that got flooded out, the garages? Uh, our garage got flooded whilst I was asleep. So I got woken up when all the mechanics were moving around all the chairs and stuff. Like, get all the water out of the garage. Obviously, there's loads of electronics on the floor, all the plugs and stuff. We had to kind of scramble around to clear that out. Uh, I did help, just so you know. Um, but fortunately, our cars were absolutely fine in that. They weren't water damaged. But uh, quite a lot of them were, so we were one of the lucky ones, really. Yeah, very lucky. Yeah. So, I saw, I've seen some pictures of those cars, and yeah, they're not, they're not, they weren't going to return to the racetrack anytime soon, were they? Definitely not, definitely not. Okay, so I've got another question again from Reddit uh, from a guy called Funkface. What is your favourite race and which do you have on your bucket list for the future? Ooh, yeah. I mean, favourite race, nothing gets close to Le Mans and that's the one on my bucket list too. As far as I'm concerned, it's the pinnacle of any race you could do anywhere in the world at any time. I know Indy 500 and Monaco Grand Prix takes some people's fancy, but for me, nothing gets close to Le Mans. Uh, especially the history that it's completely crammed with. I think it's the only reasonable target that I have ever wanted to go to i've even never even been to the race to watch i've never been there before it's definitely on my bucket list to go let alone race okay so if that was your number one what are two and three two and three i'd say is spa 24 you're spotting a trend here aren't you um but the third one in terms of what i'd really like to do would probably be either daytona the 24 daytona or the indy 500 i think just the crazy speed of it all Indianapolis, there's something you have to like about that. I'm not a big fan of IndyCar myself, but I can certainly see where you're coming from on the, uh, the GT side. On the GT side. <laughs> so, 
So next up, we've got a couple of questions, again, also from Reddit, that kind of ask the same or similar thing. So I'm going to pop them both together. Uh, so the Quantumizer asked, are there any tracks in or around near the UK that you wish British GT went to? And Red LMR 56 asked, what circuits would be fitting for British GT to race at in the UK so we didn't have two rounds at Donington? <laughs> I, I sense he's not the biggest fan of Donington, but... um. Tracks I've been to that I've really enjoyed. Zanvort's one. I did that in GT5 in 2017, and it might be a little bit cramped for GT cars, but if F1's racing there now, it can't be too bad, surely. But um, I think that would be a good addition to the British GT calendar, even though it is abroad. Um, Best thing about the track, though, is that if you leave a circuit and cross a road, you're on a beach. So so if your weekend doesn't go very well, for whatever reason, you can just take a day out and just go and lie on the beach, and things quite a nice little touch there tracks they also think would be good for british dt uh even though it's not my favorite circuit i think paul ricard's kind of like a stable mate for all gt things obviously it's where sro hold their bop tests uh i think it'll be quite a good track for gt3 and gt4 cars combined with all the different kind of corner types but a personal favorite of mine that i'd like to go to would probably be manicore which hasn't been raced on properly for a little while now but i've always loved that circuit and i'd love to go there one day I can certainly see British GT at Paul Ricard. Definitely. Okay, so I've got one from Instagram, from Classic Car Bank. Oh, uh, there you go. They're back. <laughs> that's that's yeah. my sponsors again. Cambridge County's Bank, Classic Car Finance. There you go. There we go. I should have I gone a bit further over on this. Personal private. <laughs> yeah. Nick and I were having a look on their website kind of over the last couple of days when they first popped up and I put together that day. Oh, one of your sponsors because they kindly yeah. retweeted the shout out for questions as well. So thank All you right. very much. On there, we were looking at some of the very nice cars that were on there. <laughs> yeah, I have a look at them. Yes, yeah, worth it, guys. I've got no money to spend on <laughs> I'd, there. I'd, I'd go and look at the website if I were you. There's some seriously nice cars on there. Okay, they ask, what's been your favourite mem- memory in racing so far? Ooh, okay. Um... I'm in the weird position of never having won a car race. I, I, I'm not really, like, it's going to sound quite egotistical here, but I'm not really sure how. I, I, I've got, I think it's 12 podiums since I started. I've had four second places and the rest of thirds, and somehow the, the elusive win has always escaped me. But um, I think the first one's always really special, the first podium you get. That would have been Donington Park British Touring Car Weekend in Genetta Super Cup 2018. But um, personal career highlight, I'd say, would actually be back in karting 2016 Super 1 Championship at a circuit called Fullback up in Lincolnshire. And that weekend was special for me because it's the only weekend I've ever been comfortably out front. And I was able to go around the last corner in most of the races and see my dad standing on top of one of my mate's trucks. And I just waved to him. And it was just the most fun I've ever had at a race weekend in my life. So probably that one takes the cake on that one. Okay, so next up, I have kind of random question of uh, the interview from the Checkered Flag on Twitter. Ah, yes, okay. You've been given an elephant. You can't give it away or sell it. What would you do with the elephant? I was wondering if this was going to come up. I'd seen it as well. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of an awkward one. I mean, I can't imagine ever being in that situation, really. But if I had an elephant, what would I... I mean, 
there's not a lot you can do, is there? I guess you just, I don't know, pet it, I suppose, but it needs my bigger garden. Uh, yeah, a bit of an awkward one. I could use it to get things out of trees. For example, if I get a football stuck in a tree, I could just call him a pet elephant to go and get the football for me, I suppose. But interesting question. Not really one I could possibly prepare for, but, you know, I did say prepare for the best. I think it was just too left field to not include. There are a couple of questions that we we kind of haven't really had time to include in a couple. You should ask to every guest you have on and see how. I'm thinking, I am thinking about it. Yeah, I think it would be question. good to get a, yeah. a collection of what people would do with elephants. <laughs> and then maybe the best person at the end of the year that. gets gets a toy elephant or something. Yeah, you definitely get some fantastic answers out of that. So, back to guys with some slightly more on-topic questions. <laughs> okay, so Ben Wiltshire from our uh, GT fans group on Facebook asks, what is the GT car from the past that you would love to drive the most? Okay, so I'm classifying the old GT1 for this as well. Obviously, I drive for McLaren now. Everyone's going to think this is biased, but I cannot say no to a McLaren F1 GTR long tail. I think that car is probably top of my bucket list, but some other cars also that have raced around in different GT categories that I've always had a soft spot for. One of them being the TVR Cerberus B12. The other one being, a bit of an oddball, but the Mosler, the MT900S, I always liked that car as well. I went to see that once at a race weekend at Donington, and I just, not sure what it was about it, but I was kind of fell in love with that car. They do have a fantastic sound, they do. They do. Yeah, they do. I've seen them at a couple of classic races. Yeah, I'd like to see them come back with something. Definitely. Any kind of TVR would be nice and welcome in GT, GT racing nowadays, I think. Yeah, I think we all could do with a bit of madness right now. <laughs> okay. Um, some guy called Andrew Brightman. I have no idea who he is. Uh, again, yeah, I'm me neither. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, as, he's, he's again, believe it or not, he's from one British GT fans group. As asked, what are the main differences between driving the McLaren 720S and the BMW M6? Uh, the weight transfer. Obviously, they've got different engine configurations and different engine sizes. So, the driving style for the cars is completely different. Uh, the M6, you had to be, you had to drive it very slowly. All your actions had to be very deliberated and very kind of methodical in order to try and extract the most from the car. You couldn't kind of have fun with it and throw it around. Obviously, it is a, it is a very big car. I think it's longer than the Bentley, actually. So it's, it's a, it's a long boy, but you had to kind of drive it very slow, calm and collected. Whereas the McLaren, you could definitely kind of give it a bit of a hustle and maybe flick it around here and there, which is a bit more engaging to drive. It's personally a bit more enjoyable, but the more time I spend with the car, I'll be able to give it in more detail, really. I've only had one test. Get the impression that the 720 has been more designed with the racetrack in mind, whereas the M6 was a road car then converted into a GT yeah. car. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd say so, really. I mean, the M6 has done amazing things in its time as a GT3 car, but you have to think it's getting a little bit long in the tooth now, personally. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, but personally, I can't believe that they achieved that, achieved as much as what they did with such a big car. I mean, okay, yeah, you could, you could argue that it was down to BOP and stuff like that, but I think it, it, it really had had, it to, had had its time. I mean, it got wins, um, maybe a championship or two here and there, yeah? But much like, as I say, much like the... The Bentley, the big boys that you don't expect them to do, yeah. to do, do what they do. But uh, the, the M6 is just about 
ran its course, I think, now. So yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it's been around since 2016, so it's probably time for a replacement. And obviously, they have one coming soon, so we'll see how that goes. Yes, the G- this is the M4. That would be interesting, won't it? Yeah. That'd be a four-door, won't it? If I remember, if I, if I remember rightly. Four-door GT3 car? Have yes, we ever had that before? That's, we haven't, have we? No, it's always been for two, it's always been for two-door um, coupes. And I think the SRO uh, relaxing the regulations around GT3, so it'll only allow four-door chassis. All right, well, that'll be an interesting first, then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that goes. <laughs> okay, a guy called Chris Humphreys from the fan, uh, fan group on Facebook again has asked two questions. After, after two races in the M6 late last season and two podiums, what are your aims for 2020? I'd be silly to name for a championship, wouldn't I, really? I mean... Even though the team's new and the cars are brand new, as a, as a, collective, uh, as a collective entity, there we go, uh, we have a hell of a lot of experience as a team. And we have so many experienced engineers from other realms of motorsport. You'd be, you'd be silly not to come into any racing season in, in any position not aiming for that top spot. Uh, so, yeah, I think me and Dean have our targets set at the very, very top for this season, and we expect that the team and ourselves will be able to deliver that. It's the only way to place to aim for, isn't it, really, at the top. Chris also asks, and I think this has come close to some of the, que- some of the other questions we've, uh, we've asked. He says, also, the 720 is the, one of the newest GT3 cars on the grid, whereas the M6 is one of the oldest. What was the feeling like moving to the 720S? Yeah, um, it's, interestingly, it's a lot, more complicated electronically the 720 is than the m6 but it's also a lot more simple to operate which i think is quite an interesting one so for example the m6 i've driven that car and i've had to breathe through the manual the uh owner's manual like consumer's manual if you will for that car and to put it in short there are 25 buttons on the center console of the car some with more than one function so you have to try and remember all of that to prepare for any scenario and it's a hell of a lot to try and remember Whereas the McLaren's computer system, I think, is a lot easier to navigate through, and it's a lot more straightforward to operate. Obviously, if you have an issue in a race, not that I'm expecting we do, you need to be able to figure things out quickly. So I think having that laid out is a lot easier. But driving-wise, yeah, I've already answered this question, really. It's, um, it's a lot more fun and more playful to drive with. So uh, hopefully it'll be fun at leading out on track as well. Yes, yeah, so I take it that... Um Menu system, if you will, with the McLaren again. I think I think that may come from the more more thinking around the race car dynamic rather than the road car to race car. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. So next up, we've got a question from Adam Wolf over on Twitter, who I know has raced a few cars in his time in the championships, and he's asked: with the very close proximity of races this season it's likely that crashes and repairs or even reliability problems could put a lot of stress on teams who are probably still going to be understaffed to how they would normally be, uh, which means they might not get a car turned around again in the short space of time. So how much will that affect you as drivers in terms of pushing limits and taking opportunities, or would you be playing a more long-term game and trying to keep the car out of trouble for the most part during the compressed season? To be honest with you, I think it kind of depends on the occasion that you're put in. I think Obviously, two Cs are we're doing British GT and we're also launching a GT Sprint Challenge out in Europe as well. So it's very important for us to keep the cars in one piece. But I think if you're running in second and you have a chance to take a win, you push for that win. 
Whereas maybe if you're down in fifth or sixth, your day is not quite going as well. You have a chance for fifth on last lap, but the guy in front of you is being a bit dodgy. Maybe it's worth thinking twice about going and putting the car at risk as well as your own health and everything like that. But I think my approach has always stayed the same in what I've just pointed out there. I've never been one to have a last lap absolute send like a madman into a hairpin, almost expecting a crash. That's not how I race. So I, I have faith in myself to keep the car in one piece and I have faith in my co-drivers and my teammates as well to do the same. So our approach will stay fairly similar to what it was in the first place, but obviously it is all situation dependent. That is something that's been bugging me. Oh, bugging, is bugging the right word? Worrying me a lot during the season. If, if there is a big hit in the first race, then we might not see that car come along until mm. late in the month or maybe not until September or something like that. So, yeah, it's... Well, I guess, again, I always keep on saying this. We'll have to, come, we'll have to wait and see, but it's going to throw an extra dynamic out there. Yeah, well, I think this season will be one, especially where consistency is key. Uh, just being able to finish every race, fourth, fifth, sixth, I think, will actually make the difference in the end. With the races being so close together, I think it'll be that, those kind of small differences that will mean the difference between a championship and not, really. So we'll mm. have to see how it goes. Get the points wherever you can. Exactly. Okay, so AstroCat9 uh, over on Reddit says, how does sim racing stack up against the real thing, in your opinion? Um... Well, sim racing is something I've kind of grown up doing. Well, not grown up, but I first started racing on a computer or a games console, I think when I was around 13, properly, uh, with a couple of league races on Xbox on one of the old F1 games. So I've kind of grown up in the kind of millennials world where technology is a common thing. So I've, I, I've only got a sim recently. I've only had it for around a month, but in my time on it, I've, been able to get up to a fairly good speed straight away and obviously i'm looking forward to doing sro esports on this and being able to compete myself uh, well pit myself against the best but i am a fan of sim racing in terms of its ability to reach out to people who maybe aren't as fortunate as us drivers are to compete properly on a platform that is comparable to the one that we do in real life but i as much as i'd love to say it's incredibly similar Unfortunately, there are some differences that it will never, ever be able to capture well or, well, or if it does, then I'm, I'm very happy to be proven wrong. But there are some things that I just think you can't really simulate on a computer. There are only some things you'll be able to experience firsthand. For example, fear is one of them I think that's quite important. Uh, another one is the vibration through your seat. A lot of drivers get the sensation of the car moving through the seat of the car and you don't really get that in a simulator because it's all through your hands and sometimes your feet if you've got expensive fancy pedals so i think at the moment in time it's as good as it can be but that's not to say that it can't be improved what do you think about the onset of vr sorry i'm jumping in here because i've seen a couple of videos of people using some of the newer games with vr do you think that's gonna make a difference especially in terms of the fear side of it you know i've never i've never had the chance to try vr i've kind of always wanted to and they're not they're not crazy expensive, but I'm kind of scared because they're quite technological to work and quite complicated and computers aren't really my expertise. But I do think that it's something that will maybe advance the game a little bit more, even if the esports pros at this moment in time are shying away from it. Uh, I do think it'll be something that when it gets evolved will be more usable and more useful to people in the real world. So yeah. we'll have to wait and see what kind of technological advances come with that. 
Yeah, I think it's probably not there yet in terms of racing. I have used VR a little bit for a few games and there's still issues around motion. So the way that it's working at the moment with the games that it's interfaced with is if you have a crash rather than it actually take you with the crash, um, it will just blank out rather than kind of do anything. But that in itself, um, especially when you've got kind of the the headset on, I think would probably be a little bit fear inducing anyway, because it's the essential kind of, uh, uh, (laughs) I'm unconscious. Um, (laughs) But in terms of kind of usability, it's, it's a lot more accessible than people realize now, I think. So if you do get the chance to, to have a go, I would definitely recommend it. Um, It makes for quite a good, a good fun evening. Um, Well, well, maybe I'll have to look into it. Going back to the fear aspect. um, Do you think this is where, Sometimes you hear after a race, you hear the pro drivers that may be taking part in that race going, I don't know how these e-racers do this. I mean, they're, they're putting seconds on some of the pro racers. And do you think it's the fear aspect that which, so when you're going around on a, on a sim, just they're going, right, take that corner, take that corner, take that corner, take that corner as fast as I can and stuff like that. But there's no actual fear of, so if you're going around the Nürburgring, oh, if you, if you hit the, if you hit the, the barriers on the side of the thing, you're not going to get hurt, but if you're in a, actually there you know that's going to hurt when you may it may hurt so yeah. you think that's where it's coming from yeah i it's it's very interesting i think the difference the main difference in it is approach between real races and sim races i think with sim races what they do is they go out of the box on something they don't know and they push beyond the limit and then they bring it back to a point where they are as fast as they can be period before going over the limit Whereas I think with real-world drivers, they bring in their real-world approach, which is that you build things up from building blocks. So you kind of walk before you try to run in that regard. And by building it up would work perfectly in a real world. Obviously, you have all these pro drivers, and they're not pros for nothing. They're pros because they're the best. But um, I think it's just a difference in approaches means that sometimes they'll get to a point where they think there can't be any more here, or they don't want to push any more than this for the fear of making a mistake, than they actually can. And that's where the time sound, I think. So to finish up with, um, I've got a question that's not racing related. I saw from my research, you're a bit of a musician playing a oh, few yeah. instruments. <laughs> yeah. uh, it puts you in quite good company here because both Nick and myself are musicians as well. Oh, really? Oh, okay, we're learning yeah. every day. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an instrument that would be on your bucket list to learn? Bucket list? Well, um, interestingly, I... It might be on my website. I can't actually remember if I took it off or not, but I played trombone until I got to a point of grade seven. Yes. And I did that and I dropped that, I think. Well, I stopped taking lessons. I think it was 2016 or 2015. I can't remember. But the only reason I ended up playing the trombone is because lessons for the trumpet were full. So I had no other choice but to learn the trombone. And I never bothered or never really wanted to try and learn something again because Mm. it would involve changing several building blocks that I'd developed. So I just stuck with the trombone for a bit. Obviously, I did guitar on my own singing grades later down the line, but probably one I've always wanted to play would either be the trumpet or a bit of woodwind, like a saxophone or maybe Mm -hmm. even the piano, which I'm absolutely hopeless at. I think there's something about piano because that's kind of, I think that would be my ultimate, if I could be really high standard on something, it would be piano because primarily I'm a singer, but I play 13 different instruments. Wow. Okay. Um, in various things. Saxophone is also on my bucket list because whilst oh, I cool. can play clarinet and saxophone is similar fingering for some. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
on there, the read action is a bit different. So it's still not, not necessarily fully transferable. Um, but yeah, piano, I've just never, I get so far in and then I'm just like, nope, nope, it's not <laughs> yeah, happening. It's, it's, it's the, it's the coordination that gets me. I mean, you watch some of these professional pianists and they're absolutely unbelievable in yeah. terms of their hand-eye coordination. They're not even looking at what their hands are doing. Yes. Uh, they're staring at the music in front of them and they know exactly by muscle memory where their hands and fingers need to be. I think it's crazy. So the only questions we've got left for you are our quickfire questions, oh, okay. uh, which we ask everyone. Well, I'm sitting up now. Okay. <laughs> uh, the answers don't have to be so quickfire. Okay. Uh, All you right. Have a little bit of time to think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so first up, two questions combined. The best and worst car that you have driven road or race worst car my sister's beetle terrible car 1.6 ridiculously hard <laughs> clutch and terrible gearbox best car i've driven on the road probably my sister's new car which is a mini cooper s or a car we have in stock for our family business which is a porsche 968 i love that thing okay uh best and worst track on the next two worst track a uh, bit of a touchy one i'm not a fan of alton park in particular but track that i absolutely adore is branch hatch brands hatch grand prix there we go Okay. Any particular reason you don't like Alton Park so much? Well, I had my first big crash there in 2017 in testing. So, through Shell will always claim a little bit of fear in my heart. But um, also, I think for GT3 stuff, I think the straights aren't really long enough to do much overtaking. I think the only real places are last corner, first corner, and into Nickerbrook. But even Nickerbrook's pretty much single file. Mm. So, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one where qualifying's really important. Um, so, yeah, that's my reasoning behind that. Okay, and last up, your ideal three-car garage, which consists of a race car, a road car, and a play car. Ah, oh, there's so many options. Play car being like a like a historic car, for example, like an occasion car. Yep, the, the car you okay. would take out to play with. All right, okay, so race car would be a 1950s Jaguar C-Type. Road car would probably be an Audi RS6 for every day. I've always had a soft spot for those cars. And a play car. Ooh, that's a good one. I might go for a Alfa Romeo 8C, the new one with the Maserati V8. I think it's adorable. And I love it. Excellent. Hopefully some interesting answers there. Yeah. <laughs> I think the plan is we're going to collate all of these answers. Okay. Um, as we go through, because we're asking everybody and see if there are any trends kind of coming out across them. I think that would be interesting to see. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a sucker for a classic car. So, uh, yeah, I, I love old Jags, that kind of thing. Old Jags, old Triumphs, mm -hmm. those kind of things. So I, I love those cars. Cool. Well, that's the end of um, kind of the official questions. So all that's left to say kind of right now is thank you very much for joining us it's been really informative really interesting to find out a bit more about you a bit more about kind of your career and where you're looking to go and hopefully you'll join us again at some point yeah it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me it's uh, been very enjoyable 
You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show. Or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Also visit our partners, British GT Fans, on Facebook, on Instagram and Twitter. It's Fans of British GT. For this episode, we thought we'd do something different. Um, So we reached out to all of our listeners and across social media and asked for some questions for an Ask Us Anything question and answer segment. Uh, We've had a few interesting questions come back, so we're going to kick straight off. And the first question comes from Hey Nonny Mouse, uh, which I love a good punny name, who asks, is there a minimum standard when it comes to a track being approved for GT racing? For example, a mix of corner types or minimum length. I've done some research into this one. I've been through FIA regulations and I've been through Motorsport UK regulations. And I can't find anything anywhere to say that you can't run GT3 cars at Lydon Hill or Pembrey or Anglesey. That being said, it's a brave man that would drive a GT3 car at Lydon Hill, Anglesey or Pembrey. There are different circuit gradings. The lowest one we go to is Alton Park, which Andrew knows the correct grading on this one. I believe it's grade four. Yeah, when I was um, trying to find out myself about this question, it was yeah, definitely grade four for Alton Park. So the only series that I can find that is restricted to a grade of track is, or oh, to a specific grade, minimum grade of track, are the World Championships. And even that's a little bit amorphous. Um, Formula One will only race on grade one circuits, but they can test on grade one T. Um, whilst World Endurance Championships should only race on grade one circuits, but their big race of the year, which is of course 24 hours Le Mans, is on the circuit de la Sarte, which is only a grade two. So they have a waiver to run on that circuit. Okay. I'm sure we're going to probably pick up and discuss at some point about the different types of track gradings, um, whether we do that in an article on our website. Uh, which is www.bgtfshow.co.uk, or we pick it up in a future episode, because I think there's probably more to this question uh, than a short answer. Gaz, do you have anything to add? I think the, the main criteria for where British GT goes, it make a good race. So I think as long as it's got some kind of two or three, maybe four FIA track grading, as long as it will make a good race and there's they know that there's going to be plenty of um, safety equipment around the track and, and stuff like that. I, that probably dictates where British GT go. Pit lane space is a big issue as well because obviously we, there is a clip on YouTube of a GT race back from Thruxton, I think it was 2006, and it was just sheer chaos. Now we're refueling and driver changes with 35, up, up perhaps 35 cars, perhaps sometimes more. Pit lane space is a priority and safety is a priority because you've got a lot of people running around. That probably dictates a lot of where we go to as well. Okay, um, just another point. Yeah, I was about to say, um, yeah, I, th- I think you only have to look at Alton Park and Snetterton to see how compressed the, the pit lanes can get. There is a minimum standard of circuit equipment that has to be put in place with regards to the barriers space between the edge of the track and the barriers, uh, space between the barriers and any spectators. And that's all listed in the regulations on the Motorsport UK website. If anybody is having trouble sleeping, I recommend heading there. 
just the comment that Andrew made about pit lane space at Thruxton. I've actually seen GT3 cars racing at Thruxton. Cockwith Motorsport had a GT3 first generation Audi R8, and FF Corsa had some Ferraris for a brick car round. FF Corsa worked out at the paddock. And Tockwith managed to turn their car sideways across two garages because it was too long to fit in the garage front to back. So, yeah, Thruxton for, for British GT, completely unsuitable. Okay, so our next question comes from E. Manon. And they've asked, why are there different driver classes and how are they defined? There's two different driver grading systems that would come into play with, with us in British GT. Uh, the British GT system, which Andrew's going to tell you about in a minute, is based off the FIA system. Now, the FIA driver grading system works off four levels, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. And the way they're defined is, and, and why are they different? It's different abilities of driver. So a bronze will be an amateur um, or somebody very first starting out. A silver is going to be somebody with a bit more experience uh, or a young hot shoe coming out of junior formula and, and heading on their way into the great, into the higher classes. Gold is a pro level and uh, platinum is reserved for factory drivers, for people with a manufacturer contract and anybody that has held a super license. And now a super license is what you need to race in Formula One. Going through the grades the other way, because you'll take a look now and you'll see that Martin Brundle, uh, who has held a super license, he's a Formula One driver in his past, will be listed as a silver. So drivers can be downgraded. They can request to be reassessed based on their performance. So they've been upgraded to a gold, and then they're running around at the back and, and not achieving anything. They can request to be reassessed and they can be downgraded. But the fast guys automatically get downgraded. First, as they hit 50, they'll drop down a grade from what they should be. And then again, when they hit 55, they'll drop down a grade from where they should be. The caveat on this is, if the driver wins a recognised championship, and British GT is one of these recognised championships, then in the year that they turn 50 or 55, then they lose that opportunity to be downgraded. British GT classify drivers as either a pro, an am, and then you get a silver rating as well. So your pro will be your Nicky teams, Johnny Adams. Generally guys that have been assigned to the car by the manufacturer. Your ams will be the guys like Nick Jones, Rick Parfit. The guys are coming in, bit of money to spare, Pouring it into a season of racing and having basically having fun and going for the championship. You also have a silver class where you will have young pros coming in and they'll probably bring a little bit of money themselves. But as these guys are essentially young pros, they get classified as a silver and they get classified and they get extra time penalties in the pits to uh, negate the the advantage they have of of not being an am essentially. So what you're saying there is that basically steps are taken to level the playing field as much as possible yeah. in terms of experience. Exactly. You know, say just like you've got BOP um, covering off the cars, you've got 
essentially a BOP covering off the drivers as well. Yeah. So the the the, the silver the silver rated guys will spend an extra 10, 20 seconds in the pits rather than a pro ampering where the guy who runs a business during the weekdays and comes out on a weekend to drive a, a GE3, GE4 car, they will spend 10 seconds less in the pits. And that should negate the talent level out on the track in their stint. The whole idea of it is that, in theory, a pro-am car and a silver-silver car should start at the same time and finish at the same time, cover the same distance. Uh, because whereas the amateur is going to be slower in the pro-am car, the pro is going to be quicker. But he's going to have more work to do getting past other pro drivers. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a bit of an answer to your question, Imanon. So the next question that we have is not racing related, or is racing related, but not at the same time. I'm asking the team, what would your ideal non-racing weekend involve? And our submitter, Sports Car Widow, is looking for ideas for her dear husband. Yeah, well, my ideal non-racing weekend is probably sat there doing sim racing, watching races on YouTube, um, you know, dreaming the fact that I would like to be on the side of a racetrack instead of sat at home. Bored. <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure we can count that as non-racing. Hey, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> other than that, sat out in the garden, you know, bevy in hand. Done. <laughs> See, my non-racing weekends are thinking of stuff for the British GT fans page. <laughs> How boring my life is. See, my non-racing weekends don't happen on a weekend because if I'm not at the racetrack, I can earn time and a half, time and three quarters, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, so I'll work those days instead. But then, of course, my weekend falls during the week and that enables me to indulge in my other hobby. I am a motorsport photographer professionally. I am a transport photographer because I'm also a lorry driver and I like lorries and I really have much sadness. But I do live next to some very nice roads that lorries use so I can go out and take photos of those. I think the answer that Sports Car Widow was looking for here, I will give it so that she can just sort of play this segment to her dear husband, is that my ideal non-racing weekend would involve DIY, cleaning and looking after my wife. Visiting the mother-in-law and that sort of thing as well. I like the fact we're trying to help her out here. Fortunately, we're all single, so we don't have to do this. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? Uh, weekends? What are they? Uh, they're, they're when you come round mine, make a mess in my kitchen, cooking dinner, and I bake. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I like to go and take photos of things and be creative. And whilst Nick might enjoy taking photos of lorries, I'll probably enjoy taking pictures of the landscape behind the lorries or the little tiny detail that nobody spotted. You've had some photographs of, of sort of macro nature published and exhibited and you do some very, very good work with equipment, which is dated, shall we say. Yes. As I say, it's not just about being able to take a thousand photos and get three decent ones that you then sit and Photoshop the hell out of. I think there's a lot. Of hey, what's wrong with my style of photography? 
<laughs> I wasn't commenting on anyone's style of photography, and I've seen you take some damn good pictures straight out of the camera. That was in no way aimed at you. My point is that there is still a lot to be said for having skill in framing a shot and taking time with a shot. Otherwise, it's nice to go out for food occasionally. Not that we can do that. So weekends, I go back to my original point. So yeah, maybe there's some ideas there for Sports Car Widow. Next up, Louise has asked, why is there no GT1 or GT2? There is a GT1 and GT2. Well, kind of. GT1, the terminology, I think, is now, well, still has always been owned by Stefan Rattel, and he now uses it for supercar track days. GT2 of old is now what is GTE in the WEC and GTLM out in, out in IMSA. But GT2 has now been reinvented for cars that should sit somewhere between a GT3 and a GT4. So at the moment, you've got a Porsche and an Audi, and I think there's especially McLaren coming sometime soon, and a Lamborghini maybe. KTM were planning on a GT2 yes, as well. Yeah, yeah GT2 of the, the crossbow. So they... I think it was an Audi idea or, or a VW Group idea. So the fact that you've got KTM, Lamborghini, VAG owned, they're all going to do GT2 cars. It's no surprise really, is it? But they should have more power than a GT3, but less aero. And fewer driver assists as well. Um, yeah. the, okay, the old GT2 became GTE. We've covered that. Yeah. Uh, the old, the old GT1 died because it was just too expensive. Now, the new GT2 is, it's almost like a hypercar. You've got loads of money. You can afford to buy a car that you can't drive anywhere apart from when you take it out of the lorry and drive it on a racetrack. It's a, a rich man's organized track day car, but it's people that have followed my writing on Check of Flag will know that I've, I've, I've mentioned the, the likes of Andrew Howard and Mark Farmer appeared to be more comfortable in the old Aston Martin because it's a big, brute, hairy, chested, you've got to fight the car. There's none of the computerized stuff behind it. And that's the idea behind GT2, is that you don't have all that stuff. It's a car that you've got to drive. Yeah, the, the G, new GT2 car will only be for AM drivers only, won't it? It'll be no pro-AM uh, in it. Yes. It'll be an AM driver only uh, formula. And I believe they are being accepted into World Challenge Europe Sprint Cup this year. And there was actually a plan to put me to um, there was actually a plan to put me into British GT this year, but that got um, heavily fought back. Uh, there was there was a fight against that from I think a lot of the drivers. There there is no need for GT two and British GT. We've got oversubscribed grids with GT three and GT four. Yeah, you say that you say there's no need for it, but. I think if SRO wanted the money that may bring in, I think it might get included. I think it was actually for national championship and for some international championships as well. So that's 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 yeah. that's that's where it's meant to sit. So we may see it, we may not. It could be like a GTC. Yeah. You might get one GT2 car, maybe turn up. Yeah. Now, if anybody wants to bring one of those. Um one of those GT2 Porsches that looks like a 935 
Ooh. Oh, yes, please. Uh, sod, sod COVID, I will go and hug the man that brings one of them to British GT. <laughs> Mind you, the, 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 the Audi didn't look too bad. I saw it at Goodwood Festival Speed last year. It was it, it looked, you know, it looked a bit of a beast, to be honest, yeah. Um, I can't remember the race from Spa last year when they had the Audis and the Porsches racing together, but um, I think the Porsches were were quite, they were outpacing the Audis, if I remember rightly, but I can't. Okay. I haven't got any perfect recollection. So before we get on too much of a tangent there, um, I think we'll move on to James's question. Uh, James has got another question for the team. What was the first race that really hooked you in? I'll tell you, it's a general question, uh, not just British GT. Um, mostly in our very, in the, our first appearance of the show, it was, um, F1, Mr. Mansell, and the first Grand Prix I remember was British Grand Prix 1987, when he pulled off that move on Pico going into Stoke Corner after having a driver, um, pit stop. It just came flying through, and since then that got me into motor racing, which has obviously left on left on to everything else that's come out of that. I used to watch it. I was, you know, my family, you know, were, were, were F1 watchers and stuff like that, but I can't remember any particular F1 race that really got me into it. But it's when F1 moved to Sky, and, you know, I've got my own problems with Sky. I, I went to find other freeware races that I could watch, and I think it was a... Blank pan endurance round that I found on YouTube or Eurosport, maybe. And I was like, you shouldn't be able to race these Aston Martins, Lamborghinis, you know, Audi R8s and stuff like that. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be, you know, banging doors with these. I mean, pretty, pretty great. So, yeah, that's what really got me hooked into GT racing, at least. As with Gaz there, I was a casual Formula One, occasionally a bit of touring car. Um, I knew motorsport existed. And then I found out Slicks and Wings existed because I went to Silverstone for Super League Formula. That was fairly impressive. I was there a couple of weeks later for the second round of the first year of GT1 World Championship. And that was the moment that I got hooked because Ferrari, so we didn't have Ferrari. We had Corvette, Lamborghini, Aston Martin, Ford GT. Maserati and one other that I cannot remember off the top of my head. Um, but big old cars with big old flames coming out the back of them doing crazy, crazy things. And I was hooked and I watched the entire race weekend from the grandstands, then went home and watched Abu Dhabi and I followed GT racing ever since. Okay. So next up. Paul Hankinson asks, why do American marshals wear white and European marshals wear orange? So from my point of view, marshals shouldn't clash with flag colours. So hence we have no orange flag out on the flag post around the circuit, except for on the start line, whereby it's an orange and black flag. It shouldn't really be discernible uh, away from a marshal. So we are generally advised not to wear colours that would clash with flags. So you shouldn't be wearing all blue or you shouldn't be wearing all red. But orange is also high, quite high high visibility on the side of the track. So, you know, if, if a driver's looking out for a marshal, all you have to do is look for an orange set of overalls. Out in the States, again, no particularly mandated thing. With You know, we have marshals wearing white, we have marshals wearing blue for certain tracks. 
you have the in, the instant teams that pour out the vans. They'll be wearing black, yellow, striped, whatever overalls they've been dealt with. But it could be that their um, marshals colours don't clash with flags out on their flag points either. I believe that white isn't shown out in, in, on any part of the circuit except for the start line again. So, yeah, that's over my, over that's my point. Over here, the only place that a flag will contain orange is at the start post because of the mechanical uh, mechanical issue flag, the what we call the meatball flag, the orange circle on the black background. Um, but we do have white flags over here, uh, which mean a slow car on the circuit. Uh, in the States, the white flag is only flown from the flag stand and it is only flown on the start of the final lap of the race, and it means that it is the final lap of the race, which is why when you're watching American motorsport and they have a, a safety car or a, a course caution in the dying laps of the race, they'll talk about a green-white checker because you get the green flag to restart the action, then you get the white flag next time round, and then you get the checker flag the time after. There is also another uh, Marshall's colour you'll probably see in... Uh, the UK, and that's mainly at Silverstone, whereby the guys wear black. And I think that's a historical reason for that, whereby when the Grand Prix track used to be just on the surface of the um, old airfield that Silverstone is built on, um, the marshals would stand proud of the track up on a raised grass bank, and they would be silhouetted against the sky, hence silhouette marshals, hence the black suit. I just wish that you guys didn't have orange because it's a nightmare for us photographers to find anything other than black that we can wear trackside. <laughs> yeah, it makes it easy. It makes it easier for us to pick ourselves out of photos. Well, it's me. <laughs> British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen creative and RPS-driven media production for motorsport.radio. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Uh, so next up, we've got a couple of questions from Chris Humphreys, who's been a regular contributor to our questions shout out so far so thank you for that Chris. Uh, first up he's asked we've got 19 GT3 cars on the grid this season with only the top 10 taking points each round. How do we think this will affect the racing? More battles or more playing of the percentage game? And we'll cover the second point after. Oh, I think the la- <laughs> about to say I think the last few years especially with um it's scoring points regularly does seem to be the way of building a championship campaign from Flick and Johnny Adams in 2018 and Graham and Johnny Adams last year. It was the continuous point scoring. Let them build the championship from there. Having one dodgy score with how close things are, if we do get on 19 cars still this year, is going to be the best way to build your championship um, contention. In terms of having the the, the battle or percentage game question uh, for, for, from Chris here. I think at the front of the field, there's going to be a lot of drivers that will be a lot more circumspect about some of the moves that they make. Positions 13 to 7, I reckon it's going to be a bit brutal. I reckon it's going to be called that a knife. This is a knife. Um, because... 
it's going to mean that much more to move up those extra couple of places. You're not going to be able to say, right, I'll take a, I'll take a blob on this one, uh, and move on. But the other thing to consider here is of the 19 GT3 cars we've got, they're not all fighting for the same championship. Uh, we've got some that are fighting for the overall. Then we've got some that are fighting for the pro-am. And then we've got some that are fighting for the silver cup. So where they finish, they might finish out of the top 10 overall, but they could still finish in the top 10 of their class and therefore get points they need for their championship. Yeah, from my point of view, again, I think it's going to be all about the percentage game. Um, for those who, those who are looking for a championship win, there will, of course, be the odd person that wants a race win after race win after race win, and he will be up there fighting for the lead. Nicky Team is still here. Um, but also at the back of the field of those 19 cars, you're also going to have guys that are basically just here to race. GCAT racing, in the, we love them, we love them to bits. Well, I do anyway. They're, they're two AMs essentially, where in a, in a, in a class where full, full of pro AM and silver. Guaranteed, guaranteed a championship win that way, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so if, they, if they're the only ones, if they're the only ones in their class, then there you go, their championship is theirs. But they're just here to race. They're they're here to spend their money how 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 they like. And as as I, I think as I think I've pointed out on on here before, that's what Mister Rattel creates championships for. He creates championships for people to go and spend the money however they like, and that's exactly what they're doing. What I will say, with me suffering a Seto Corsa competizione the way that I am, um, I'm now feeling a lot more generous towards GCAT racing. These things are not easy to ride. <laughs> it ain't easy. I'm sure when you get used to it, it's a brilliant car. <laughs> yeah. So linked to that last question, Chris has also said, only two cars last year scored points at every round, the number 47 and the number 69. Constantly bagging points this year will put you into the decider with a chance. Which car do you think will be the most consistent? I'm getting in first so that I can beat Andrew to this one. I think Sean Balfour and Rob Bell are going to be pretty damn spectacular this year. I think they're going to be very consistent. I'm not certain whether they're going to be able to beat the Johnny Adam and Amadou Harty pairing over the course of the year, but I think in terms of consistency, they're going to be one of the best. You finally listened to reason. Well done, Nick. So part of me <laughs> there wants to say, fight! <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think there could be you know, several people, you know, cons- hopefully consistently scoring points. Hopefully Sam will be just as good in the, in the Merc than he, than he was in the Lumbo. So, yeah, I mean, you, you know, it'd be nice to see people points, scoring points over, I, I, consistently and, you know, getting, getting themselves up the table. You know, this is, this is GC racing whereby, you know, you could, you could take one knock on the first corner and that'll knock your suspension out and put you out, out of contention for the rest of the race. So, Anything to add on this one, Andrew, before we move on? No, I'm going to stick with my um, uh, championship favourite, Mr. Um, Sean Balfour and Rob Bell. Um, I was, last year they had that McLaren going really well. The years of experience with it. They've got some testing going with it as well. They've been out straight away. I'm just going to stick with them. Okie dokie. So, next up, Bry Master Bry asks... Would you like to see longer endurance races in British GT, say six or 12 hours? And if so, where would you want to see them? 
Yes. No, um, I don't want to see them. <laughs> Is that no? You don't want to see them, or no? You don't want to work them. <laughs> three hours is my limit. Uh, it does seem to be that. I've, as I've discovered all these years, mastering three hours is my limit for a race. Um, I could probably make an exception for British GT if we were going to do it, to be honest. But Gaz loves endurance. I'll let him do this question. Uh, my answer is yes to yes and uh, every single circuit. Um, I think the championship would would um, look better in... in in, in the eyes of, in, of more of other other championships, if we did have a maybe a longer six hour race, say eight hour race, you know, at the heart of it, rather than the, you know, it's still some five hundred is good. Don't get me wrong, yeah, but would it be better to have a six or an eight, you know, at the heart of it, and you know, have the uh, have the five hundred as well, as well as some other one or two, even two hour races as well. Silverstone six six along the Silverstone round would work, especially if we went into the night as well. I think that would be oh, pretty yeah. spectacular. And if if we did that, our chances are we could probably get other cars from other series coming along because Silverstone can hold fifty sixty cars um, with the circuit configuration, of the Grand Prix circuit in the pit lane, as Longpon or GT Endurance, whatever it's called nowadays, has proven. So something like a longer race into the night at Silverstone, I'll be I'll be happy with that. Donington would do well with a into the night race as well. I did a um, HSCC meeting last year, and that was absolutely brilliant. Um, with with, their, with the night racing around there, there are now four circuits in the UK that are licensed for twenty four hour racing. I would love to see a proper GT twenty four hour race back in the UK. Uh, Britcar had a go at it; they passed it off to Creventic, who have now sort of dropped it which is a shame, and that was at Silverstone. But we had problems with the 24-hour race at Silverstone and the locals. So there are a couple of other places we can do 24-hour racing. Snetterton is one of them, and I would love to see 24 hours of Snet. I think that would be fantastic. Um, but the thing to consider here is cost. If you go for 12 hours, then you are basically doubling the length of the season because you take out the three hours of Silverstone, for example, and replace it with a 12-hour race. You've got 12 hours of standard racing, and then one race is 12 hours. And in terms of cost for tyres and fuel, I'm not sure the teams would be quite so happy about it. Oh, yeah, I mean... If you made it a non-championship the, round. The the, co- the cost, of course, will go up. And, and I think the question, would you like to see more racing, more, more endurance racing? Yes, I would. Um, but whether or not the teams or the paying drivers would actually like to see more endurance racing? Yeah. You know, some of them might do. Some of them would definitely say, "Absolutely not." I would, you know, I, I like to do the championship as it is. But I, th- I think the the championship would be seen more favor, more seen more favorably, you know, internationally if it did. But, you know. Now, what I wouldn't mind seeing is that all the endurance rounds go up to three hours, apart from the Silverstone Five Hundred, which would go up to. Eight, well, eight and a half hours. But 8.33 hours, because that'd be the Silverstone 500 minutes. <laughs> okay, so next question submitted by Davey T. What do you think will be the next big move or breakthrough in British GT? Well, we've already discussed the fact that we might have a GT2 car in there, but I think the next thing to come through British GT would probably be the hybridisation of GT cars, if 
uh, if we if we if we get there and we don't go you know somehow fully electric at some at some point. So um, I think that could be the next big thing in in GT racing overall. I think the next big thing, the next breakthrough in British GT we're going to see is the Johnny Adams, Phil Keynes, Rob Bells starting to be matched and then surpassed by the Ross Guns and the Angus Fenders and the Jack Mitchells. Uh, so the next generation coming through. It's going to take a little wee while yet because Johnny Adam, Phil Keane, Rob Bell, they ain't slowing down. But I think it, the, the next breakthrough is going to be the younger generation coming through. I'll go, I'll go with you. I'll go with you on that one. I think there are some astounding young talent coming through. As long as they stick with GT racing, and there's no reason why they shouldn't. Uh, you could, yeah, I think you could be right there. It's where the money is these days. Why why pay to race in Formula 1 when you could be paid to race in GTs? Exactly. <laughs> okay, so uh, kind of on a related note, seeing as you did touch on kind of the question uh, in your last answer, Gaz, uh, Daniel S. asks specifically of British GT, do you think we'll see an electric class of GT car as electric cars become more mainstream and do you think they could compete with GT3? Yes. Yes. I do. Um, and I think we could see it sooner than, than, than Gaz is, Gaz is predicting. Um, there is an electric GT car already built. I don't recall it actually racing and it's a GT, ver- electric GT racing version of the Tesla Model S that was built for electric GT. Now, if they could squeeze an hour out of one of them, then that, that could, that could do the sprint rounds already. Um, in terms of competing with GT3, not yet, because you've got that battery trade-off. Yeah, the electric GT was meant to start racing this year, but I don't think they could get anywhere to want to hold it. But in, I, th- I think in the future, um, the new hybrid GT cars, new electric, as battery technology you know, progresses even further than what it is already at the moment, Toyota are doing astounding things. Uh, or have been doing astounding things in LMP1 with their batteries. And you only, have to, you only have to look at when Porsche came in and made Audi rethink its flywheel hybridization. And, you know, Porsche were buying up battery companies to make, to, to make their battery technology for the LMP1 even better. And, you know, they, they came in, what was it, three years? They won every single year they were, they were there. So battery technology is, is coming up. It's not ready to race, I don't think, by itself, um, despite what Electric GT were trying to do. Certainly hybridization, I think, is the way forward for well, will be the way forward for for the for the foreseeable future, I think. The thing is to, uh, Toyota Supra could go for three hours fully electric now. Uh, probably won't be that quick, but Toyota launched their first hydrogen fuel cell vehicle back in 2012 in the States, the FCX Clarity. I think hydrogen's the way that we need to be going. Battery technology is all well and good, but you've always got that range anxiety. Until they they make an electric car that works like a petrol car and that you pull into a big flat bit with a roof over it and you put a hose on your car and you fill it up with something tangible, I don't think necessarily that 
the world's populace is going to quite grasp the electric car until it's a bit more similar to a petrol car. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't understand why hydrogen isn't being pushed more, um, except for the fact that you know you need the filling stations ready to fill it up. Maybe we won't see full electric then. Maybe we will see hybridization, hydrogen. Maybe I know that um, when they pull down the pit garages in Le Mans later this year, um, the new pit garages that will be built will will house a hydrogen filling system or a hydrogen capable filling system. So you know, uh, Le Mans are looking at hydrogen. I think that's through BMW. I think I think BMW have wanted to bring hydrogen to Le Mans for quite a while now. Um, I believe there's going to be so, a hydrogen power car at this year's race anyway. If yes, I there is. Garage, yeah, yeah. garage 56. The green GTH2 was supposed to be garage 56 back in 2014. It's running, it running in, It's running a bit behind schedule. Isn't it the hydrogen car who's supposed to be running in Road to Le Mans with the LMP3s? I can't remember now, but... Yeah, you, I think I think you are right. I think there is supposed to be a hydrogen car somewhere at Le Mans this year. Okay, so let's bring it back to a British GT question. This one's been submitted by Joshua Gilding. Thanks, Josh. How do British GT teams get drivers? Is it done by recruitment or do drivers ask to join a team? It's a bit of both, really. Um, there's a few models that, that are in place. Um, the Aston Martin guys, uh, the the AM will come to the team and say, I want to go racing. How much of a check do I need to write? And then the team will go to Aston Martin and they'll say, we have a customer for a car. We need a pro. And Aston Martin Racing will assign one of their pros unless the AM brings a pro with them. Andrew Howard has always picked his own pros, for example. The other way of doing it is the likes of Sean Balf, who runs his own team. Uh, so he's guaranteed a seat. Um, and he will hire Rob Bell to drive with him. There's actually been some interesting articles I've read over on Daily Sports Car, and it's not cheap. <laughs> I can tell you that now. Um, but yeah, it's basically, you know, and we'll go and find a team, ask how much they charge for a season, decide when nice within his budget. And, you know, if he's not bringing his own pro slash driver coach with him, the team will source a pro for him or go and ask the factory for... Uh, see if they want to provide a pro for them. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much. Of it course, works, there is there is the third model, uh, which I believe Century use, which is they tend to run in silver silver cars. So they will buy the car, and then two silver drivers or two amateur drivers will both buy space in that car for racing. Um, Sentry obviously quite fortunate in that if they can't find somebody to take the second seat in a car, Nathan Freak isn't exactly slow. He can jump in the car. Okay. Next up, we've got a question that's been submitted by Mark, um, who asks the team, have you ever met the guys from Top Gear? If so, who was your favorite? Old Top Gear, new Top Gear. What were we thinking? Who it's got to be old Top Gear, isn't it? It's, 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 it's got to be real Top Gear. Yeah, unfortunately, I've never met them. I've met both of the confirmed Stigs, obviously Perry McCarthy and uh, Ben. I've completely forgotten his surname. 
which is stupid because I've got his book around here somewhere. Ben Collins. Ben Collins. Uh, yeah, I've met both. I've met both of them. Have, have you met Phil Keane? I have met Phil Keane a couple of times. Is he yeah. now confirmed with one of the stigs? He's been current stig for a little while, I believe. Yeah. Um, in terms of the 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 three the three guys, I've not been formally introduced to them. I've met informally, sort of bumped into a couple of them. My favourite, probably James May, because he's a proper down to earth motorist in terms of some of the stuff that he drives. Yeah, he's got the flash cars. When you've got that sort of money, why wouldn't you? But his daily driver is a Fiat Panda. And anybody that's got his sort of money and still drives a Fiat Panda is uh, is kind of worth listening to. I've actually got a picture of him at Newcastle train station when I lived up that way. Didn't actually realise who it was at the time. I just saw this white suit on the platform opposite. And I was like, that's a nice picture. Took a picture, zoomed in. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I've never met any of the old team. I've certainly said hello to Chris Harris when I sent him on the uh, pit walks at Silverstone. Um, for the blank pen endurance rounds. Um, that's yeah. I think I that's sh- the only member Chris of him. You shot him. I shot Chris with a camera. As in, oh, with um, a camera. All oh, right, okay. Just with a camera. Um, midway or so stages. Like a BB gun hanging off the side of the circuit or something. Like that. <laughs> so I was thinking yeah. paintballing then. Yeah. <laughs> Midway on stage is Can you explain uh, his dodgy performance at the um, British Grand Prix support round the other year? <laughs> I say, Midway on stage's rally, first round of the relaunched uh, MSA BRC, as it was back then, uh, he gave the Toyota GT86 R3 its first first competitive run. So I've got a photo of him in a, in a, in a GT86 R3. So there you go. Mark, have you met any of the Top Gear guys? Let us know. And who is your favourite? <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we've got a question from Louise, who asks, why would you say GT racing is the best kind of racing, if this is the case, or do you disagree? I would certainly say the GT racing is the best kind of racing. Look at the cars that's on the grid. They will go as close as BTCC car. You know, if I want to watch cars going door-to-door, wheel-to-wheel, I'd much rather watch... Aston Martins and Lamborghinis and McLarens doing that than whatever they use Ford Focuses in in BTCC or BMW one one series or something like that. Single seaters don't really interest me. So, and my other love is prototype racing. So you know, watching WEC, ELMS, which also includes a GT class. So, yeah, GT racing is definitely my favourite. I know I started watching F1 first, but over the years, GTs became the favourite. I've always wa- always wanted a Ferrari F40. It's a very fast GT car. Um, but obviously, these cars you see in GT racing are attainable. These cars you can actually have possibly afford one day. It's not like a hypercar, which is pushing the boat. If you're very, very lucky, you win the lottery, you can win them ones. Things like an Aston Martin or a McLaren 720, even the GT4 cars, a Ford Mustang, um, the old Jaguar XKRs. These cars are if you're okay, you can actually afford these sort of things. You race, you can drive them on the road. So it's, it's matches up with real life sort of, sort of thing. I'm going to do a gas here. I 100% agree with what Andrew's just said. For me, GT racing, GT racing is cars that if you work hard, when you get to your retirement, you can aspire to one of these. 
mean, a 2012 Aston Martin these days is what? 12 grand, maybe 15. That's doable for a car. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on Aston Martin there. Maybe it's more like 30 or 40 grand, but still it's doable for a car for your retirement. And it's, it's cars that you can one day hope to own, one day hope to own. It's not guaranteed. But, and you can picture, you can picture yourself driving that and then you can see what in skilled hands the car can do. Okay. Tom has asked, who would you most like to have on your show as a guest? Stefan Rattel. You beat me to it. Come on, big boss man. Come and, come and join us. Come and speak to us, please. <laughs> Got lots of questions for you. There we go. Official invite submitted. How about yourself, Nick? Um, I'd probably go with possibly John Minshaw because he's got he's got tales to tell. He, he's done his time in British GT. He's been in it for he was in it for a long time. Uh, he's always been at the front. There's there, there's unfortunately for him always been that disappointment. But I'm sure he's got some some serious tales to tell. And he drove that lovely BMW. I'll stick a second in that one, right? Anyone, anyone with a good story to tell as well? Yeah, yeah. go and tell us your stories. Okay, Andrew, do you want to have a second? Apart from Stefan Rattel, I'm guessing the obvious person would probably be um, Benjamin. I can't pronounce his last name. Franchovici, something like that. Yeah, he's one of the series organisers for British GT. He's been around for a while. I think everybody knows that. Who's sort of a vague idea of British GT is? We'll see him wandering around. Um, he's about. He, he's, he knows he's very enthusiastic about British GT and GT racing. He's very high up within SRO. He, he would be a good chat to get on the, on the show. I might actually give him a go and see what he says. Yeah. And another one for me would be John Gore, a man at the head of Pro Drive. He's raced. He's run AMR. He now runs Pro Drive. Um, I, I'd like to like, like the chance to sit down and talk to him about a number of things. I think one of our possible members of the, the British GT fans would probably like to see is probably one of the most popular drivers we've had, former champion, Mr. Rick Parfitt Jr. I'm sure people would like to hear him on our show. And that's all we've got time for for this episode of the British GT Fan Show. Thanks for listening. We hope you found out something you perhaps didn't know. And send us any questions that you'd like us to try and answer. And we'll give it a shot in future episodes. For now, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And see you next time. Thanks for listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, the show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed, reproduced or used in any form without permission. For more information or to get in touch, please visit www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Thanks for listening.